Very good. That's awesome. And I'm glad that I'm among the living. If I do not hug you, greet, touch you, uh, realize that's an act of love, having had uh, three days buried with the flu, I can really experience Easter this morning as I feel resurrected. Well, actually, I don't. I told Todd, I feel like Lazarus. You know, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he was alive but he was still wrapped in his tomb clothes, you know, in, in, in his grave clothes. And uh, I think I'm still wrapped wrapped up a little bit, but uh, glad you are here. It was crazy. I mean, Tuesday, I went to, Jeremy and I went to breakfast, and I came back to work and just started coughing a little bit, and I thought it was something stuck in my throat. And, and uh, do what? It was Jeremy. I know. I don't know. Actually, it may have been, because I got to tell you this story. This is hilarious. We're at first watch, and it's it's all been remodeled, so it's like real uh, hipster-like. So that's why Jeremy and I go and eat there, because we're hipsters. And uh, they deliver your water in uh, like uh, little milk jugs, things, you know. So we're sitting there, and no sooner do I look up, and old Jeremy's just swigging away off the milk jug. And I'm like, uh, Jeremy, your glass is right over it. <laughs> And then actually you turned it around and you poured from the other side, didn't you? So I don't know. I don't know if it was Jeremy or not. But uh, I went downhill and I tried to sleep it off one day and, and it, it was better. It was better. And uh, so anyway, going to urgent care helped me. And, and I'm glad that you are here. Are you glad you're here this morning? And we are privileged to be here together to uh, celebrate our Lord's resurrection. So take a look at this. And we'll get started this morning. The Son of Man must endure many terrible things. He will be rejected, tortured, and killed. But on the third day, he will rise. Father, I asked if this cup could be taken from me, but only if it was your will. Today, your will is done. The ones who mock me, the ones who strike me, the ones who drove these nails through my hands, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't see what even the criminal beside me has seen. Now, it is finished. Welcome your children. May they now come boldly to the throne of grace. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Seek the living among the dead. Don't you remember? The Son of Man was crucified and buried. 
But it's the third day. He is not here. He has risen. He's alive. Amen. Are you excited? That's a good thing. That is a very good thing. And I want you to turn to your Bibles to probably the greatest chapter in the Bible regarding the resurrection. And it's 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you turn there. And let's go to the Lord and uh, let's give Him praise. Father, we come and we thank You that Your grace is sufficient for every need that You have risen from the dead. And that's not just true this Sunday, it's true every Sunday, it's true every day. And you are living and reigning and ruling and granting salvation as a free gift to whoever will call on your name to be saved. And we pray that this morning someone will get a grip on the gospel that has never held it before. We pray that each person here who has already accepted you will strengthen their grip on the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would never be apathetic, and yet sometimes we are, and we confess that as sin. I pray that we won't take it for granted, yet sometimes we do, and we confess that as sin. But Father, your spirit is active and working, and your word is being taught and preached, and your praises are being sung. And so we want to exalt your name this morning. Because we know that you are alive. I pray for each person here. No one's here by accident. Each person has a divine appointment. Each one of us, including myself, you want to speak to. And I pray that you would give me strength to share what your word has to say. Hide me behind the cross. May we see you in all your resurrection power. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey. I want to help you this morning get a grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that there's all sorts of websites strengthen your grip? Now, I am no bodybuilder, as you can perceive that very clearly. And uh, I'll just share with you, I don't see a lot of bodybuilders here. But actually, there are... what Now, Dana, really? <laughs> was that Was that funny? Uh, but there are websites about how to strengthen your grip. And here's what I found. There's four types of grip strength, and I'm going to add one as well. There's crushing grip strength. A crushing grip strength is like a very firm handshake. I have to confess that when I came here uh, on staff 25 years ago, that I had to get a lesson from Duana Michelzik, actually many lessons, on how to have a firm handshake. Uh, in fact, that's probably one of the first things she did. She she just looked me in the eye and said, "You must get a firm handshake," and and proceeded to to bring tears to my eyes as she demonstrated her crushing strength. Uh, and Mr. Michelzik's good at that too. So if you ever want to experience crushing strength, just shake hands with the Michelzik's. There's also supporting grip strength. That's being able to exert crushing strength on an object and sustain it for a period of time. Duana has supporting grip strength as well. Uh, but that would be like if you're doing a straight uh, stiff leg uh, deadlift where you grip the bar, but then you can support that weight. 
And then there's pinch strength. And I'm sure some of you have had mothers that had great pinch strength. That is grasping and lifting an object placed between your thumb and fingers is an example of pinching strength. Anybody have a mom with pinching strength? Yes, Colby? I can just imagine. I thought your ears were rather large, but I know why why that happens. Pinch strength. I thought that was classic. And then there's wrist grip strength. And that's like if you can take a chair and lift it by one leg and keep that chair uh, uh, balanced. So, now, I doubt if any of you, or at least I anticipated none of you, this Resurrection Sunday caring much about the four kinds of grip strength. Uh, but I want to add one more that is important to everybody here, and it's this. It's gospel grip strength. Gospel grip strength. You say, well, what is gospel grip strength? It's this. It's being able to hold fast to the gospel by God's grace so that you do not believe in vain. It's being able to get a grip on the gospel and never let go so that you do not believe in vain. And just so you know, I'm not making this up. Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 15 and let's read through verses 1 through 11. And I'll show you. In verse, in verse 2 is where we're going to see the gospel grip. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, or a more literal translation would be, by which you are also being saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you. There's the gospel grip. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is the Greek name for Peter. And then to the twelve. And that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born. Very unique phrase there, untimely born. It's a word for miscarriage. It's the word for abortion. It is the word for a stillbirth. It is the word for a late-term abortion, a uh, late-term birth. He's saying, "I was like one who was not born at the right time." He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Put them all together. And I have labored more. Yet not I. It's not me. But the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. My goal This Easter morning's very simple. I want to help you do two things. I want to help you to get a grip on the gospel for your own salvation. If you have never 
accepted Christ, if you have never firmly held the gospel for your own salvation, I want to help you do that this morning. But I also want to help you strengthen your grip on the importance of the gospel so that you never lose your grip on the gospel, so that your salvation, your believing in Christ will not have been in vain. Because ultimately, your salvation and the salvation of others depends on your grip on the gospel. And already right now, you might be saying, well, that, that's not going to happen for me. But listen, don't take for granted that what you believe now or in the past is what you're going to believe in the future. Because if you take that for granted and assume that and rest on that, then let me assure you, you're probably headed already down the wrong path. Don't take for granted that your children will continue to believe the gospel that you in this church have taught them for all these years. Because that just isn't always the case. Even the born-again Corinthians, with all their spiritual gifts and all their advantages, think of these guys. They've been taught by the Apostle Paul. They've been taught by Apollos, probably the mightiest Bible teacher in the early church. Even with all those spiritual advantages, these people were in danger of losing their grip on the gospel. Otherwise, Paul would not have written verse 2. You don't tell people to hold fast if there's not somewhat of a danger of them loosening their grip. So let me ask you this morning, how strong is your grip on the gospel this morning? Have you ever gotten a strong grip on it? And if you have, are you in danger of loosening that grip, of losing that grip? Now you say, why should I care? Well, because Paul says in verse 2, those who lose their grip on the gospel believe in vain. That means their belief is useless. It doesn't save them. It's not saving faith. But here's the good news. When you truly get a grip on the gospel, then God's grace gets a grip on you, and you will be secure and sure of your salvation. And you'll be able to share it with others so that they can get a grip and be saved. And you'll be able to show your salvation through living for the Lord and laboring for Him and not giving up, and not quitting, and not getting lazy in the Lord's work. So, let's take a look at it. Two points, very simple, but let's take a look at it. First of all, get a grip on the gospel for your own salvation. Get a grip on the gospel this morning for your own salvation. This is really the message of verses 1 and 2. So, look again in your Bible. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I just have three observations here, and here's the first. The gospel is God's only means of saving people. So get a... The gospel is God's only means of saving people. Um, if you look at verse 2, where it says, um, <coughs> by, look at the beginning of verse 2, it says, by which you are also saved. By which. And what 
the Holy Spirit led Paul to write there in verse 2 emphasizes the fact that the gospel is the means or the instrument or the tool God uses to save people. He's saying, look, the means by which, the tool, the instrument by which God saves people is the gospel. And it's the only tool he uses. Now, I'm, I'm no handyman, and uh, my wife can attest to that. But every important task, I do know this, every important task requires a tool or an instrument to get the job done. Right? Every task requires a tool or instrument. If you want to peel a potato, what do you use, ladies? A potato peeler. And it just, it's so effective. It works so wonderfully. It's it really, that's like one of God's amazing instruments. If you want to change a tire, then what do you got to use? You got to use a tire iron and a jack. If you want to do heart surgery, what do you got to use? You got to use a sharp scalpel. And if you want to save people from their sins and reconcile them to God, then you've got to use the gospel. It's really that simple. Now, at my house, I rare I don't have tools because I'm not a handyman. And so I rarely have the right tool for the job. And consequently, it either takes a lot longer than it ought or in fact, many times, the job simply can't be done because you don't have the right tool. I'll never forget when we first bought our home. This is what new first-time home buyers get excited. We had a stump that was out in the front yard. And uh, I was so motivated to get that stump out. And I didn't have an axe. I didn't have a shovel. I, I literally used a claw hammer. And Gwen just got the biggest kick out of me out on my hands and knees. I eliminated a stump, Kobe, with a claw hammer. Now, literally, it had to have taken longer, but I was motivated in those days to do something that dumb. But here's the fact. A lot of people try to use other tools in order to be saved. They might come to church on Easter. They might try to do good works. They might try to be a better person. But you cannot get the job done without the right tool. And the right tool is the gospel. It's God's only means of salvation. The Apostle Paul made the same point to the church at Rome when he said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the ability of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So if you're going to be saved and if you're going to be made right with God, and, and I hope you're here today and you want that, you've got to get a grip on the gospel like the Corinthians did. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. You need to hear the gospel preached, taught, shared, or you need to read it. Somehow you need to hear the gospel. And then you need to receive the gospel by believing it and trusting it to save you. This Gospel is God's means of saving people, all people. People like you and me, and people that are not like you and me. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That it's, it is God's only means for all people. Whether they're like us, whether they're not like us, whether they speak our language, it doesn't matter. Get a grip on the gospel. But here's, here's the second observation I want you to see from these two verses. The gospel is able to save us in the past, the present, and the future. So never the gospel is able to save us in the past, the present, and the future, 
So never let go of it for something else. Once you get a grip on it, never let go because it saves in the past, the present, and the future. Now let me show you this. There is so much theology in just these two verses that many of us may assume we understand, but we haven't thought through. And so I want to help you with that. In these two short verses, Paul reminds the Corinthians that salvation is not just a point in time in the past, but it's also a process that comes in three tenses. And those tenses are the past, the present, and the future. See, too often we get a grip on the gospel in the past when we were younger, and then we say, okay, I, 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 I held on to it then, now I, I will move on to something else. Or I will look for something else. Or you are tempted and deceived into thinking you need something else. But salvation is not just a point in time. There is a time when you cross over from darkness to light, from death to life. There is a point where you cross over, but that begins a process of salvation that is past, present, and future. And all three tenses are here in these two verses. So let's take a look at it. The gospel is sufficient for all three tenses of salvation. First of all, we received the gospel and were saved in the past. We received the gospel and were saved in the past. That's our justification, our declaration that we're right with God, that we are saved. Now look at the verse. Paul makes it clear that he himself preached the gospel to the Corinthians in the past. They heard it. They received it. They believed it in the past. And therefore, he is able to write to them as though they are truly saved people. In fact, in verse 1, he says, I make known to you, brethren, you are brothers and sisters. We, You are born again. You are saved. He's able to write in verse 2 of chapter 1 of this letter, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, all past tense, saints by calling. You're, you're saints. You're set apart ones with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So they received the gospel and they were saved in the past. But notice, he says, number two, we stand in the gospel and are being saved in the present. We stand in the gospel and are being saved in the present. This is our sanctification. Here, Paul is emphasizing the present impact of the past decision to receive the gospel. And I'm not trying to show off my Greek in front of Michael, who is a much becoming an expert Greek scholar. But Michael, this is why you need to keep studying. Because it does enrich the scriptures, okay? So listen, it says, in which you also stand. And that is a perfect tense. And a perfect tense is a marvelous theological truth in Greek grammar, because it means something happened in the past, but continues to have an impact in the present. And what he's saying is, you took a stand in the gospel, and you are still standing in that gospel today. It's worth it, Michael. Keep at it. By, and then he adds to that, he builds on that in verse 2 when he says, by which you are also saved. And some of your translations bring out the present tense there by saying, by which you are being saved. So you were saved in the past and you took a stand on the gospel, but you are 
standing, having stood on the gospel, you're standing on the gospel, and you are continually now being saved by that gospel. Present tense. Third, he moves on to the future tense. We hold fast to the gospel and will be saved in the future. That is our future resurrection, which the Corinthians were denying, which we're here to celebrate. Our future resurrection and glorification. We hold fast to the gospel. Paul moves to the third tense of salvation in the future and assures them that they will be saved in the future. But there is a warning, isn't there? You will be saved if you hold fast to the gospel that he originally preached to them. You see, the gospel is God's only means of saving people. So we need to get a grip on it and never let go. You've got to receive it. You're being saved by it. So stand in it and then hold fast to it until he comes. Until he comes. And that brings me to the third observation. And it's this. We must never, never lose our grip on the gospel for is God's only means of salvation for all people for all time. We must never lose our grip on the gospel for it is God's only means of salvation for all people for all time. Now, I need you to pay attention right here. This is where the devil wants to distract. This is where confusion can enter in. And I, I want to be as clear as I can be with Mucinex and Tamiflu flowing through my veins. And I'm kind of having an out-of-body experience even now as we speak, but medic, 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 medical out-of-body, not, not, not anything evil. False teaching had come into the Corinthian church. Some of its members were beginning to question the essentials of the gospel, particularly the resurrection. They're starting to reinterpret and take apart the gospel. And so Paul begins by saying, verse 1, Now I want to make known to you the gospel I preach to you. Now some of your translations will focus on the idea of reminding them. I want to remind you. Do some of you have that there in your Bible? Okay. And some of your translations will highlight the idea of clarifying the gospel. I want to clarify the gospel. But the New American Standard Bible has it most literally and most accurately Because what the word here means, it means to make known something as if you had never known it. I want to make known to you the gospel that I already preached to you. In other words, I want to reintroduce you to the gospel. I Basically, he's re-preaching the gospel to save people. He is, in a sense, re-evangelizing the Corinthians. Now, if you were super spiritual like the Corinthians were... That, that's a little bit of a rebuke. Paul was pretty good at the irony and the sarcasm to make a point. Out of love, out of love, because the, the stakes were so high. He's subtly saying to them, I think I need to make known to you afresh and anew the gospel that is saving you. Not because they had lost their salvation. He calls them brethren. As he's re-evangelizing them, he says, brethren. 
And, and it's not because anyone can truly, who is truly born again, can lose their salvation. Let me say that again. It's not because anyone who is truly born again can lose their salvation. The Bible clearly teaches that those God saves, he also secures their salvation to the end. But Paul is re-preaching the gospel to them because they are in danger of changing the essentials of the gospel and proving that they have never been saved in the first place. Listen to me. This is what it means to believe in vain. It means to make a profession of being a believer, but later denying the gospel that saved you. It means making a profession as a believer, but later proving that profession to be untrue. That's what believing in vain is. And one way, listen to me, one way a person reveals he or she was never saved in the first place is by denying the gospel they initially heard and received. In other words, they eventually lose their grip on the gospel. They don't hold fast. They reinterpret it. They change it. They eliminate parts that they don't like about it. True believers do not believe in vain. True believers believe the gospel in the past. Uh, 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 true believers do not believe in vain. I'm sorry. Believing the gospel in the past, but denying it in the present or the future. That's not what true believers do. They don't believe the gospel back here and then in the present say, well, I don't believe it. And then everybody around them tries to assure them that you're still saved. That's, that's not taught in the Bible. That's not taught in these verses. True believers believe in the past, continue in the present, and hold on until Christ comes. They hold on to that gospel, which is God's only means of saving. Here's what true believers do. They receive the gospel in the past, they stand on it in the present, and they hold fast to it until Christ returns. Now, Last week we talked about the Corinthians had gotten too spiritual for their bodies. Remember that? Well, here Paul is rebuking them for getting too spiritual for the gospel. They had gotten so spiritual they thought they could reinterpret the resurrection. They thought they could make it mean what they wanted it to mean. But let me just say this. The gospel's not ours to change. The gospel is God's. So we don't change it. We don't improve upon it. We don't correct it. We don't subtract from it or add to it. It's not ours to do. It is God's good news to us. Amen? We are to receive it gratefully, thankfully, humbly. We are to stand on it confidently, courageously, and we are to hold fast to it tenaciously until He comes. You see, this is not a reminder. Oh, it's a reminder but it's more of a rebuke. This is not a, just a clarification. It's a correction. Now I make known to you. And, and I gave to you, um, and again, Michael will appreciate this, a little chiasm structure there. I, I laid out this verse, to, to, and I won't get all into it because uh, I'm so drugged up now, I'm not sure what it all means. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the... It's like Paul 
is going from the past and he's dipping in and he's penetrating into the present and then he's backing back out and saying, that is if you hold fast. I mean, just the whole structure of the sentence makes this truth that I'm trying to drive home to you. See, I make known to you because there is a chance that you have believed in vain. Because those who receive will hold fast. And those are the ones who are being saved in the presence. Now, I hope you get a grip on the gospel this morning. Once we get a grip on the gospel for our salvation, we need to strengthen our grip on the importance of the gospel. Now, whenever I get in a discussion about a passage like this and talking about what is the gospel and what we need to believe about the gospel, the question always comes up, and and pastors are notorious for doing this, well, I didn't know all this when I got saved. Are you saying I'm not, I wasn't really saved? Because if you're like me, you know, John 3.16 was about as far as we got when we first got saved. And that's not the point. The point is, if you still know as little about the gospel as when you first got saved, then I, I have to say shame on you, right? I mean, I hope you know more of the gospel now than when you got saved, right? And that's what we should be doing. We should be strength, strengthening our grip on the gospel. We, we should strengthen our grip on the importance of the gospel. And so that's what Paul does in verses 3 through 10. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is what you must know. This is what you must believe. This is priority one. You can't grow beyond this. You can grow deeper in it, but you can't grow beyond it. You can tighten your grip, but you can never let go of it. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then on he goes through verse 10, which we've already read. Now let me focus your attention on verses 3 and 4. 3 and 4 really gives us the essentials of the gospel. Do you see it there? His crucifixion and his resurrection according to the Scriptures. Friday, we celebrated Good Friday. Amen? Because Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture. He died for us. That's what makes it good, though it cost Him everything. And this Sunday, and every Sunday, and in fact every day, we celebrate Resurrection Sunday because Jesus was buried bodily, and He rose bodily from the dead according to the Scriptures for our salvation. But Paul wants us to, to do much more than get a grip on just that gospel basic message. He wants us to get a grip on more than just these two events. That's why he wrote all that he wrote in verses 3 through 11. So I want to give you seven reasons why you should get a grip on the importance of the gospel this Easter. We'll move through them quickly, but there's, these are the undercurrents. This is what he's trying to communicate in the way that he communicates it. So let me give you the first one. The gospel is of first importance, and we should never let go of it because it's scriptural. Because it is scriptural. (coughs) 
Isn't it very interesting, verses 3 and 4, how he repeats that phrase, according to the Scriptures. Everything about the Gospel is according to the Scriptures. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Jesus Himself taught us that everything about the Gospel is according to the Scriptures. You know the story. He has been crucified. There's even been reportings that He has risen from the dead. But two disciples are on the road to Emmaus. They are discouraged. They are confused. They are disheartened because they truly believed that Jesus was God's Messiah. They truly believed that Jesus was going to come as God's King to right the wrongs and to save His people and to establish His kingdom. And Jesus, the risen Lord, comes alongside them in verse 17 of Luke 24. And here's what He said to them. What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us, When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, that's the entire Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You see, the gospel is simply the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who was crucified for our sins and rose again to give us a new heart that desires to love God and to love others. You see, according to the Scriptures is just another way of saying this was all done according to God's will. So what, you ask? So what's the big deal with that? Well, to reject the gospel is to reject the Bible. And to reject the Bible is to reject the gospel. To reject the gospel is to reject God's will and to and His only way of salvation. And that becomes a very significant thing when we face death. I ran across this testimony this week and, I, and it was so fitting. I want to read it to you. On May 15, 1984, the year I... Uh, graduated from college at Liberty University. 
the Christian theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer died. We had the privilege of that year of actually seeing him uh, that year before he died. His widow and partner in ministry, Edith, would later write about the comfort that she received in those lonely moments. Her confidence rested on the scriptures that her husband had defended throughout his ministry. He was a great champion for the inerrancy, the authority, the absolute truth of the scriptures. And here's what she writes. It was 4 a.m. precisely that a soft last breath was taken and he was absent. The absence was so sharp and precise. Absent. Now, I only observed the absence. I can vouch for the absence being precisely at 4 a.m. As for his presence with the Lord, I had to turn to my Bible to know that. I only know that a person is present with the Lord because the Bible tells me so. I did not have a mystical experience. I want to tell you here and now that the inerrant Bible, and that means without error, became more important to me than ever before. I want to tell you, you very seriously and solemnly, the Bible is more precious to me than ever to me. My husband fought for truth and fought for the truth of the inspiration of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, all the 52 years that I knew him. But never have I been more impressed with the wonder of having a trustworthy message from God, an unshakable word from God, than right then. I did not have to. I did not have or pretend to have some mystical experience to prove that Fran had left to go somewhere, that he had gone to the prepared place for him, and that he was indeed okay. I could know by turning to my precious Bible and to his precious Bible. And we each have had several and read again that absent from the body is present with the Lord. And that is far better. It is far better for the one who is thus present, but not for those who are left behind. God knows all about the pain of separation and is preparing that separation will be over forever one future day. I also know that because the Bible tells me so. I feel very sorry for people who have to be hoping without any assurance because they don't know what portion of the Bible is myth and what portion might possibly be a trust trusted. Listen, don't ever underplay according to the Scriptures. There's even now celebrity pastors that would want to tell us that it's not the Bible that teaches us anything. It's just simply the resurrected Lord. Well, look here in 1 Corinthians 15. We do not know the resurrected, the crucified, the resurrected Lord unless the Scriptures tell us. So that's the first importance. Number two, the gospel is historical. The gospel is historical. In verses 5 through 8, Paul tells us about these appearings. And he goes through it and he says, look, Jesus historically, verifiably appeared. And he starts listing people. And it's not just individuals or small groups. One of them is 500 people at one time. You can't have that kind of mass hallucination. 
okay? It was, li- li- it was verifiable and it was historical. Why do I make that fact? Because we live in a scientific age that likes to say everything has to be proven scientifically. Well, to prove something scientifically, it has to be repeatable and observable, like in a test tube or in a laboratory. But let me tell you that the vast majority of what you believe and act on in life is not proven scientifically. It's proven historically and verified by eyewitnesses. Events that can't be repeated in a test tube. Events that won't be observed again, but were observed by eyewitnesses. Christ was a real person. And He rose in a real body. And He appeared to real people. And at the time of writing, Paul says, 500 of whom, most of whom are still alive, and you can go ask them. It's historically true. It's a historical fact. Number three, the gospel is of first importance because it's proposition. Proposition. What do I mean by that? I mean simply this, that events are important. Historical events are important, but they need to be explained. They need to be preached. They need to be taught. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Baptism pictures the gospel, crucifixion, and resurrection, right? Buried in the likeness of His death, raised in the likeness of His resurrection. But without the preaching of the gospel, baptism means nothing. It's a ritual. Lord's Supper pictures the gospel event of the shedding of His blood, the breaking of His body. But without the preaching of the gospel, the explanation of these events, that ritual means nothing. When I was 13, I was baptized... On Easter, I was given a Bible, and I began to take communion. But it meant nothing to me until four years later, I came to this church and heard the gospel preached and explained. It's truth that must be explained. It's not just a story. It's not something that can just be told in pictures. It needs to be preached. It needs to be taught. It needs to be shared. And it needs to be shared relationally. And that's the fourth thing I want you to see. The gospel is of first importance because it is relational. Or you could say personal. It's relational or personal. As you read through verses 1 through 8, you see that the gospel is very relational. It's very personal. Think back to when you first heard the gospel. Somebody invited you. Somebody shared it with you. And I would venture to say that most of us, it was in the context of a relationship. I think it's very interesting that in these resurrection appearances, it says he appeared to individuals and not just to groups. He appeared to individuals. The gospel is personal because Jesus himself became a person. That's something to rejoice this morning. The gospel is personal because Jesus revealed himself personally to Peter, to James, to Mary. The gospel is personal because Jesus still reveals himself personally through the preaching of the gospel. 
So let me ask you this question this morning. When did Jesus become personal to you? When did he reveal himself personally to you through the gospel? I'll tell you, this is what first drew me to Christ. I was a good person living in a good family, going to a church that was good. I was, I mean, just that was it. It was, but it was religion. And along the way, I knew something was missing. And along the way, God would bring people who personally knew God into my path. And I saw a difference. And I wanted what they had. It wasn't just a religion. It was a personal encounter. They talked about God in a personal way. And they demonstrated that they knew God in a personal way. So how about you? When did Jesus become personal to you? And more so, do people look at your life and say, there's someone that really knows God personally. And I want to know the God that they know. And that leads us to number five. The gospel is of first importance because it's transformational. The reason you know people know God and you see a difference is because the gospel changes them. It transforms us. Now, I have listed there, I just picked out the people that are right here in this passage. Um, And Pastor Bruce has been preaching from Acts and we've seen just how the gospel transforms people. It transformed Peter from being a coward who denied Christ to being courageous for Christ. Amen? And it happened through the resurrection and the reception of the Holy Spirit. It transformed James. James is even more interesting, though. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James grew up with Jesus. And he was a skeptic. He didn't believe it. I mean, he, 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 he didn't believe it. And then, the resurrected, his resurrected half-brother, who is now, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals himself to him. And this is how James writes about his half-brother in James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's, he's not, you know, I went from being a skeptic and resenting my older brother to submitting to his lordship. Now, if you've ever had siblings, you know that's no small transformation. Am I right? It transformed Paul from being a murderer of Christians to being a missionary for Christ. And this is what he talks about in verses 8 through 9. He says, look, I was the least worthy and Paul became the most honored. Why? Because of the grace of God. Because he did... The grace of God is not received in vain. We may believe in vain, but when you truly receive the grace of God, it is never in vain because it always changes those who receive it. God's grace is never given in vain. And then it transformed the Corinthians. And I want to read you this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Because of what's going on in the media, because what's coming in our culture, I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's the most transforming, hopeful resurrection message. Verse 11, and such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed. (laughs) You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There were, in that church, people with all those pasts. So don't let the media, don't let the government, don't let the pressure of your peers loosen your grip on the transforming power of the gospel. I I can't explain it. You don't have to have a scientific study to support it. You just need to know that the Scripture says... Such were some of you. Anyone can be set free this morning. Amen. And there's no reason for any of us to be enslaved to any sin because of the transforming power of the gospel. And six, it's universal. He ends this passage in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, it doesn't matter who preached it. So it was preached and so you believed. Listen, get a grip on this. It's universal. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who brings the message. What matters is that the message is the gospel. And then number seven, it's motivational. I like verse 10 again. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Listen. If you've been transformed and you have a grip on the gospel, then God's grace has a grip on you. And if God's grace has a grip on you, then it's motivating you to live your life for the Lord and it's promising you that living for Him is not in vain. And that's why in this whole... And we'll eventually get through the whole chapter. So come back next week. We'll eventually get there. And in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. So you see the theme? Don't believe in vain, because God's grace is not given in vain. And because God's grace is not given in vain, your labor for the Lord is not in vain. So how strong is your grip? Are you holding tight? The proof of it, is in how you're living for the Lord on a daily basis. How you're serving in this church. How you're building this church up by your giving, your living, your sacrificing, your serving. It's shown by an attitude that says, I have so much because I was so unworthy. And yet, by His grace, I am what I am. And His grace is what is motivating me to lay it all out for the Lord. We have all different reasons for serving at this church. And there's different seasons in our life when we're tempted to back off and we're tempted to to retire, so to speak. But that's not how those who have a grip on the gospel live. Listen, you can measure your grip of the gospel in some respects to your devotion to his local church and your labor in it, a tight grip breeds 
and births a strong devotion. Let's pray. Father, we come, and it's by your grace that any of us are saved, and it's by your grace that we hold on to the gospel, and it's by your grace that we never let go. But Lord, I'm so glad that your grace is never given in vain. It transforms us. It cleanses us. It washes me of my sin. And it makes me more like Jesus in the process. Father, I pray that we will never assume that we will always believe. Rather, we will hold fast. We will strengthen our grip. And may next year, may we have a stronger grip on the importance of the gospel than we have right now. I pray that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.